is Sit Rep on BFBS. Is Putin threatening to use nuclear warheads over the Baltic states? What are the odds tonight on a nuclear agreement with Iran? Is the MOD's malaria drug dangerous? Can the new Nigerian leader take on Boko Haram? Will defence be an election winner on the 7th of May? And what about the dead teeth at the Battle of Waterloo? Hello there, welcome to SITREP, I'm Tim Cooper. It's reported President Putin is so desperate for NATO to back off from Russia's borders that he's threatening nuclear action. The Times says Western security chiefs are braced for the Kremlin to begin a series of what they call destabilising actions in the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Well, Mike Evans co-wrote the article and uh, joins us now. Hello, Mike. Hi. And alongside me in the studio is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Mike, first of all to you, is Putin really willing to use a, a nuclear weapon over the Baltic States? And where's this info come from? OK, I think the alarming thing that's really uh, been going on for some, some time now is that the Russians uh, have adopted a new attitude towards nuclear weapons, uh, rather than it being a sort of last resort. They're now openly, in, part, in fact, it's part of their nuclear doctrine, suggesting that nuclear weapons could play a role uh, in, if you like, they, they use the word de-escalating a conflict. In other words, drop a bomb and no one else will dare to do anything and therefore it comes, it comes to an end. But it's, it's all part of nuclear sabre-rattling, which I don't think we've uh, uh, sort of been listening to for a long time. It's now a, a new sort of language which they're adopting. And this came up uh, very prominently at a meeting uh, between... American and Russian counterparts uh, last month uh, in uh, Germany. It's, it's called the Elba Group. It was set up to uh, try and keep contacts going between the senior American and Russian uh, military officials and intelligence officials to try and sort of work out what was going on between the two countries. And this alarming language came up in this last meeting. Uh, and the language has been relayed back to Washington, and uh, people are getting rather alarmed by it. Yes, you mentioned that uh, Putin in particular has been very keen to stress Russia's nuclear capabilities, even at a, a primary school, I gather, in, in Russia, saying to the children, look, we've got these nuclear weapons, aren't we special, so to speak? So, I mean, the question really for Mike and you, Christopher, as well, is, is what was said at this Elba meeting, is it policy, as it were, or is it just people playing off what they think Putin wants to hear and the message they think he wants to tell? Mike? I don't think there's any thinking about it. I think there's no question that they, they went to that meeting, the Russians did, uh, with the sanction of Putin and with Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister. Uh, so this is a very high-profile little group, and they, they have the backing uh, of Washington from the American end and from Moscow at the, uh, the Russian end. So the, the language is that it, that's produced there is all about the messaging that uh, the Russians are very keen to get across to the West, that don't mess with us. Uh, we are a nation with nuclear weapons. We're not going to start blasting a nuclear war. But, by the way, we don't like what's going on in the Baltics. Uh, we think you're pressurizing us, pressurizing our borders. And if there's even a hint that you're going to club together with Ukrainians to try and get Crimea back, uh, you're going you're gonna to face something pretty nasty. And, by the way, just remember, we have nuclear weapons. This is the message that they're constantly wanting to put across. Christopher, what do you make of this message? Well, the first thing, 
um, is the fact that uh, it has the thumbprint of Lavrov, the um, the Russian foreign minister. Um, without Lavrov, uh, you could have dismissed it perhaps as a you know, a, a, a gathering of the old guys, uh, and then guessed about whether Kremlin uh, sort of agreed it not. No, Lavrov there. Therefore, it is a message and it's well delivered. The second part of it is um, we have two elements here. Um, one or three, really. One is that you've got Crimea. Now, I can't see any suggestion at the moment that, uh, if we call it the West of that reaction, has ever been that we will get the Crimea back. I think it's fairly complete, and that's it. Um, but he is saying this, or the Russians are saying this, and saying, look, warning, don't mess with us. Now, early last week, uh, there was an exercise in the Black Sea where the Crimea is, uh, and this were... NATO coalition type uh, ships up there, you know, not necessarily saber rattling, but showing that we still have the right to be up there. And as far as the Russians are concerned, although this Elb meeting took place long before that, the Russians are concerned. That's the sort of thing that might be sort of a threat. Then you move to the Baltic states, which is a, quite a different thing, um, and the idea that you could incite, let's say, demonstrations, especially in somewhere like Estonia. Uh, where I think is probably the largest Estonia, Lithuania, mm. I can't remember the largest Estonia Russian and Latvia yes, too. but mm. it's Estonia has got the, the largest Russian sort of uh, speaking uh, p uh, population, something like 27% incidentally it's interesting that Estonia is one of the few NATO countries that meets the 2% GDP that everybody's talking about um, but that is important if you started the same thing that was started in East uh, Eastern Ukraine and just supposing there's a NATO exercise and there's a new command centre uh, in, in apparent retaliation the Russians say quite clearly we could use that as an excuse to show your aggression the last point is the reaction of the EU um, the EU has always been a bit nervous about what you could actually practically do about uh, uh, Ukraine. And I think here we're going to see a sort of a widening of views about some what some EU members want to do about relations with Russia, and it's certainly not to get into a nuclear release, and the United States. Two different views. One final point to you, Mike, just very briefly, if I may. This is all showing that Putin is satisfied with the way Crimea, Ukraine has gone, and the response has been weak in his eyes from NATO and the West, isn't it? I think it is. Uh, I think he's played his cards uh, pretty carefully, but also outrageously, and it's shaken a lot of people. Uh, NATO has, you know, rushed troops to that region for that reason. But as Christopher pointed out, uh, there are a lot of EU countries who are very anxious and uh, beginning to uh, weaken uh, at the thought that uh, Putin is going to face is going to cause trouble, and so they're suggesting that sanctions should should perhaps be called off. So I think Putin has got uh, more cards in his hand than the West has currently. Mike, stay with us. We're going to move on to a new topic now, and that is on Nigeria. The country has a new president. General Mahmoud Buhari won the election beating President Goodluck Jonathan by 2.5 million votes. He's vowed to defeat the Boko Haram militants that have been causing havoc in the north of the country. He himself is from the north of Nigeria and a Muslim, and much of his support came from the northern region. Um, I think the north of uh, Nigeria views him as a potentially very strong leader, and Christopher, he has been leader of this country before under very different circumstances. Well, yes, I mean, he's been in the past, he's been, been seen as a, a, as a dictator. Um, but what is, what is remarkable here, I suppose, um, this is the first time, I think the first time, that you'd have seen a Nigerian leader deposed through 
a democratic means. Um, and I think we also have this distinct wait and see, because to see uh, if there's going to be any reaction, internal reaction, to try and depose it, uh, depose him or not. Uh, he doesn't take command tomorrow because he's just won the election. He doesn't take command and uh, become president until the 29th of mm. May. And there is this sort of hiatus, this handover, rather like American system, of, of, of where do we go from here. Mike, what should the international community take from this? Obviously, the news about a so far peaceful transition of power looks positive, but, but this bloke was known as an authoritarian last time he was in. I mean, he made civil servants do frog jumps if they were late. Is he the right person for Nigeria right now, do you think? Well, let's, let's see. I mean, he claims uh, that he's dropped all his dictatorial uh, tendencies and is now uh, a sort of uh, reborn um, uh, Democrat, which is uh, fine, and as long as he sticks with that. I think there's no question that Nigeria needs a very strong and tough uh, president, and I think uh, his predecessor, or the one who's leaving, uh, was not seen as a, as a tough leader. Uh, if they're going to have any luck against uh, Boko Haram up in the north, uh, then they're going to need two things. They're going to need a very strong leader who uh, has a particular strategy that will do something, and he needs a very strong military behind him. And I think uh, the military so far in Nigeria have, apart from the odd exceptions, have failed really to tackle the, the, uh, the, the terrorist threat. And I think uh, this new leader just might uh, make this happen. Christopher? Um, good luck, John, uh, Jonathan, or I suppose we ought to call him hard luck, Jonathan, by now. But uh, good luck, Jonathan, never really took on the idea that the army had lost lost it. Um, they had they had lost it certainly through those, that, that middle management area of what we would call the company commander C, senior NCO area. Uh, how to work in small groups, how to react, how to use intelligence more if in fact they had it and a lot of it was human in, rather than any other system. And it, it, in many ways what we're looking now for is to see whether or not the new president says, listen, come in here Let's review, and talking to people like the British, let's review how we train. That's a key point as well. Obviously, it was a British colony until 1960. Mike, finally from you, what interest does Britain have in all of this right now? Uh, well, I think they do retain an interest but, uh, and w would certainly uh, be prepared to perhaps help with training uh, if they're going to really tackle Boko Haram. But I think the main uh, people involved, I think, will be the Americans. Uh, the Americans have been shown an interest in and have already taken part in some training, uh, but only at a very small level. And I think uh, this new guy uh, may well turn to America and say, right, we want proper training. So I think there could be a, a sort of joint effort by Britain uh, and America, but principally America. OK, Mike Evans, thank you very much indeed for the time being. Still to come, why did nice old ladies pull out dead teeth on the battlefield at Waterloo and what happened to them? Well, the teeth, that is. This is BFBS. Sit red. OK, marathon talks have been going on in Switzerland between the US Secretary of State, John Kerry, and his Iranian counterpart, Javad Zarif. They're attempting to agree crucial details of a nuclear deal. The talks were meant to finish on Tuesday. Uh, joining us on the line now is uh, Timothy Stafford, a research analyst at the Royal United Services Institute, specialising, Timothy, in nuclear issues. First off, what are the sticking points here? Uh, let's start off with the Iranians. What do they want from this whole process? 
Well, the Iranian position has always been that they want substantial sanctions relief. The sticking point with regard to that is how that works in practice. The Iranians would like significant sanctions relief almost instantly the moment that a political deal is reached. They want repeal of the UN sanctions, they want more freedom to export oil and, and so on. The position of the P5 plus 1 has always been that whilst sanctions relief is obviously part of the deal, sanctions themselves have to be unwound in a phased step-by-step -step process uh, according to the way in which Iran complies with the restrictions on its nuclear program that would form part of the, the, the stick as opposed to the carrot. And what about the US? What's their aim? So from the US perspective and also from, from its negotiating parties, the, the key aim is to ensure that Iran's nuclear program cannot be weaponized. Uh, now, previously, there have been a number of sticking points, including the number of centrifuges uh, and whether Iran would ship out of the country the enriched nuclear fuel that it already has uh, in order for it to be returned at a subsequent time in a format that couldn't be weaponized. It's unclear what the situation is on those two issues. What has become clear over these uh, last couple of days is that another issue has, has come to the fore, which is what is going to be the extent to which Iran can conduct research and design, research and development into new centrifuges that it could maximise its technological prowess in order to potentially break out once a deal has finished. Uh, that's now a key sticking point. Now, Christopher Lee, this has been bubbling on for, for many, many years. Why now is this happening? Or does it, I suppose the question I'm asking really, does it have anything to do with the fact that we're sort of almost allies with Iran now against IS in Iraq. I don't think that because it is a continuing process. Um, but that may set part of the uh, the private agenda, the private sort of atmosphere. I tell you, I'm interested in, on this whole uh, sort of thought. You see that uh, Timothy was saying there about um, what sort of work can the Iranians do in the meantime. And so, if you have an agreement that you won't go to the next stage of, let's say, centrifugal. Um, uh, work for 10 years and the Iranians say no it's got to be 15 and they'd agree on 12 etc you can see that happening but let's switch that whole mood to Washington uh, Obama is now going to face a problem here the American Congress, the US Congress is about to meet and one of the subjects it will be having is the sanctions. Not only just to renew sanctions, but maybe to increase sanctions. Now, if it hears, or if somebody gets up, as they will do, and they speak, and they say, yeah, but these guys are actually going to be carrying out the work in private for 10 years, by which time they'll produce a mushroom cloud somewhere, uh, then the chances are that anything that was agreed... Congress would never get round to ratifying. No, it doesn't have to, but that is the, uh, that, that is the sort of basic sort of atmosphere of the whole, whole debate now. Timothy, uh, surely the only winner here would be Iran, because if they do get any sort of agreement that allows them continue with, to continue with their centrifuge research and gives them that breathing space and sanctions are scaled back, they're the ones in position to, to go ahead with their ambitions in secret, aren't they? Well, it, of course, depends on the, the final details of the agreement if one is reached. Uh, the, the American position uh, under the administration, though not necessarily uh, in accordance with the Republicans, and, and your commentator there just mentioned uh, the Republicans in Congress, has been that the, the approach should be based upon calling Iran's bluff. Iran has always said that it wants a peaceful nuclear system, but not one that is weaponized. The American negotiating position is based uh, upon the premise that allowing Iran to have a small enrichment capability gives it the chance to demonstrate that it is only interested in a civilian program and not in a nuclear one. The problem is, is that a number of the steps that the Americans want Iran to take to, to prove that, Iran is proving very resistant to. 
So just to give you a, a, short, a short list of them. Firstly, Iran is suggesting that whilst it will allow IAEA inspectors into the country to verify that its program is civilian, it's resisting the, the possibility of IAEA inspectors visiting military sites. It's also now resisting the idea that it should ship out portions of its enriched fuel uh, to ensure that they can't be weaponized. So there's a range of, of sticking points, but particularly when it comes to the idea of verification, the only way a deal of this kind is going to work is if there is very, very intrusive uh, inspections by the IAEA to ensure that Iran is in compliance. Uh, the problem with that is that from the Iranian side, uh, being singled out for more intrusive inspections than any other country is seen as a violation of sovereignty, and that's something that the Iranian negotiators are wrestling with because they know they can't bring such a deal home and sell it to their public. Timothy, just a, a sentence on this briefly, if I may. What about Israel in this whole process? Well, obviously, the Israelis are worried because they're not part of the negotiating process, so they're worried about what will emerge. Their position has always been no enrichment with Iran, within Iran whatsoever. Uh, so they're not wild about the idea of a deal, particularly Mr. Netanyahu. The big question from, from, that hovers over the Israeli position is, if talks break down, as Mr. Netanyahu would certainly like, what comes next? Is it actually going to be a return by the US to pressure, or will there be some further negotiations down the road? Timothy Stafford from the Royal United Services Institute. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. And whilst we're in the region, Christopher, let's briefly talk about the Iraqi army and IS, and they've pushed them out of Tikrit, apparently. Is this significant? Uh, there's still some mopping up. Mm. Uh, mopping up is difficult then because it's, it's, it's full of uh, booby traps, etc., and they're not all gone. But it's, it's been safe enough for the Iraqi Prime Minister, Hadel uh, Abadi, to go to Tikrit, to take the Iraqi flag, to fly the Iraqi flag, and say, right, next step is we go on to Mosul. Um, the Americans think this is the right result because it has been accomplished largely by the Iraqis. Um, but there have been two groups fighting in Tikrit. Uh, there have been the groups that have been led by what we would call the uh, leader of the SAS uh, in, uh, in, in our parlance, mm -hmm. but in, by Iranian commander. Uh, uh, and they are really not what uh, the Americans wanted to be in there. Um, the important thing is now we go on to uh, uh, Mosul, and in the meantime, how does a Shia government persuade the Sunnis to go back and live in Tikrit? And don't forget, Tikrit is very much a Sunni place. It was mm. Saddam Hussein's birthplace, for example. How do they persuade them to go back? Because there is the problem of Iraq and that it is still revenge politics by a, a Shia-promoted government? That's a question for another day, I think. And uh, let's move on to another question we're all going to be asked. Uh, Parliament was dissolved on Monday ahead of, of course, the general election, and defence is often bottom of the list as a campaigning issue, but will it be different this time round? Our reporter James Hurst has been talking to Professor Michael Clark, who's director of the Royal United Services Institute. Well, traditionally, defence doesn't feature much in election campaigns. It's back in the 1980s when you could say defence was an issue. Um, so this time it's not really expected to feature. But I wonder if the Labour Party, when they publish their manifesto, might be more aggressive on defence than they might otherwise have been, because I think they feel that they've got the government on the back foot, that the Conservatives are a bit uncertain on defence expenditure, and I suspect that defence might make a bit more of an appearance this time than it normally has. And for those who live and breathe the job of defending the nation, there seems to be a lot of uncertainty about the future. How, how much does 
the future of their job and indeed the future of their jobs depend on the outcome of this election? Well, whichever party wins the election, uh, defence is likely to be pared down a bit more. Uh, we're not sure how much more, but certainly we're in for another lean period of defence until 2020 or 2022, and that partly depends on the future of the national economy. I think the hope in MOD is that they've reached the bottom, that it will start to get better, but the suspicion is it may still get a bit worse yet before it begins to turn into something else. But also there's a sense, too, that after 2020, we have to rethink defence more fundamentally, which is not to, to say do less on defence, but we may think about configuring defence uh, in different ways in order to meet the sort of challenges which are more likely to arise in the mid-2020s and 2030s. There is one of those very long-term decisions awaiting the next government, the main gate decision on Trident. In this case, uh, Trident could be affected, the Trident decision could be affected by uh, two parties that may be quite influential. One is the Liberals, Liberal Democrats, who are uh, very unhappy about the Trident programme and, and wanted to put it back in this government. Uh, they would take some persuading to go with the main gate decision as originally conceived. But more importantly, the SNP are vehemently anti-Trident. And if the SNP turned out to have some real influence after the election, which at the, at the moment looks possible, um, then it would throw certainly the timing of the Trident decision into some doubt. So a coalition government could hinge on Trident? I think Trident could be potentially a deal-breaker between, say, uh, a, a, a coalition government, another, another coalition between the Conservatives and the Liberals, and even between a, a sort of a Labour Party SNP arrangement might founder on the Trident issue because, uh, in reality, Trident is a, is a pretty fundamental matter of principle for the SNP, not just a tactical problem, it is a sort of moral issue for them. And for the other parties, it doesn't loom that way. What else might be uh, awaiting the next government in terms of defence decisions? Is it really about the money in Trident? Ultimately, uh, all defence decisions are about the money. Uh, but I think what we may see is the, uh, a competition for understanding the way in which the international environment has changed. In other words, who wants to stand up uh, to uh, Russia? Uh, who wants to be more assertive in terms of what's going on in the Middle East and so on? And in this respect, the Labour Party may have a, another advantage here because uh, they can argue that the Conservatives are, are becoming more anti-EU and if they become anti-EU, it will be much more difficult for Britain to maintain some sort of European leadership along with, with its role in NATO. And the Labour Party may find that it can come through this election saying we're the ones who believe in a more assertive, useful defence policy along with our European allies because we don't get ourselves wrapped up on the EU in the way that our Conservative opponents do. It will be very interesting to see if that works out this time. When it comes down to it... All observers seem to think this election is going to be fought and lost on the economy. Is defence going to play a part in making up voters' minds? I think defence will uh, not be a, a big issue in this election, but it may actually create an atmosphere. Um, that's one of the things that defence does do. It, it's an image issue, and, and the image for traditionally for the Labour Party is that they are a bit unsure on defence, they don't really like defence, and whereas the Conservatives are very strong on defence. That's not always the reality, of course, and in this case I think the Conservatives will feel that defence is an area of vulnerability, and the Labour Party might decide that they want to attack the government on defence issues more aggressively than has normally been the case in the past. That won't make a, a huge difference, but it will add to an atmosphere, it will add to a momentum, 
momentum if the Labour Party builds any momentum around other issues. That was Professor Michael Clark talking to our reporter James Hurst. An anti-malarial drug called Larium is said to produce psychotic side effects. Larium, also known as Melokine, is given to British troops. Former Chief of the General Staff wants Larium banned. So far, though, that's not happened. Professor Francis Nostan is Consultant's uh, Physician in Tropical Medicine at the Shoklo Malaria Research Unit in Thailand. I'm very pleased to, he joins me now. Uh, thank you, Professor, for joining us on SITREP. Are you aware of the psychotic side effects with Larium? Oh, yes. I, I, I know very well about the subject, yes. What can happen specifically? Uh, in, a, in, a, in rare cases, uh, larium can cause uh, disorder of the central nervous system, so that's the brain, and that can manifest itself in, uh, in either neuropsychiatric um, uh, symptoms like uh, bad dreams or delusion or aggressiveness or, um, but it's rare. I emphasise that. There are a lot of side effects with most drugs. We see them on the packets, don't we? Um, but most of them are exceedingly rare. Why would the Americans, for example, have reduced its use and even banned it completely for their special forces? It, it seems to me that the side effects here aren't as rare as perhaps they may be painted. Um, well, you have to look at the studies because that's how we know how rare or uh, or not is an, a side effect. And the studies suggest that in about one in a thousand uh, person that you will treat with mefloquine will develop, uh, a, let's say, a serious uh, neuropsychiatric adverse event. Uh, but um, but it's it's less frequent even if you use the drug as a prophylactic drug, which is the case, I believe, in the uh, British Army. So. Why your question is why the U.S. military have uh, stopped using the drugs? Um, I, I'm not quite sure I can answer this question, but I would say that's probably because of the same uh, type of pressure that um, that is being seen in a, in a, you know in elsewhere in the world by uh, by by various people, but and the media. But I'm not quite sure this is the right decision to make because mefloquine is a very good drug. It's a very good drug against malaria. Uh, malaria can be easily lethal, can kill uh, people. And uh, we should remember that malaria, uh, that mefloquine, the, the drug we are discussing about uh, now, was developed by the U.S. military during the Vietnam conflict. And the reason for that is that more... Uh, of their personnel, their troops were down with malaria than with the uh, fight with the um, the enemy. So um, it's a very valuable drug. Uh, it's a very good uh, drug for prophylaxis. Uh, my 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 sense by listening to the to the BBC broadcast uh, uh, recently on the subject is that the issue here <clears throat> is not so much whether mefloquine should be banned but whether uh, it should be prescribed more carefully and, and uh, by a trained professional. It is not normal to give mefloquine to soldiers uh, if it has not been prescribed by a physician who is experienced in it and, and can detect the people that should not receive mefloquine. 
Professor, thank you ever so much for joining us on SITREP. I uh, must say that Public Health England says there's no reason to ban it, and there's a statement from the MOD on this which says, all our medical advice is based on the guidelines set out by Public Health England. Based on its expert advice, the MOD continues to prescribe mefloquine as part of the range of malaria prevention treatments recommended. It's just one of the prevention treatments available and is only prescribed under certain, certain circumstances to ensure the treatment provided is the most effective. Well, in a little while's time, in fact, three days after my birthday, on June the 18th, Britain will mark the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. This week, the London auction house Bonham sold memorabilia and artefacts from the battlefield. Christopher Lee, tell me about your teeth. Well, what used to happen, or what did happen at the end of the battle, Waterloo, 1815, was these old, old darlings went out with a pair of pliers. Hmm. And they went out and they got to the corpses and they yanked out the teeth. And then they sold the teeth on to what were then sort of dentist technicians, but dentistry. And they made up, with a bit of ivory, sets of false teeth. Proper, good-looking gnashers, because a lot of these guys had good teeth, especially the front ones, not so much the back ones. Mm. And I've got a pair. You've got a pair? Well, you I wear them, do you? <laughs> 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 not, not my own, but 1815. 1815. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, there was a trend, wasn't there, in, in earlier times to, to take out all your teeth and have wooden ones put in. And I guess this was part of it, but also the disease of the time and all that. But you get woodworm. You get woodworm. Yeah, of course you do. That's yeah, right. That's yeah, so you can stay away from apples. It's a cool thing to have, though, isn't it? It Very is a cool thing. I'll bring them and show bring you. Bring them in and show me. Thank you. Mind your neck. From Christopher's Nashers and from me, that's just about the end of the programme. Uh, if you'd like to join the debate, not about teeth, but about the other things, uh, we're on Twitter, and you can follow us at BFBS SITREP. You can download the podcast from iTunes. From me, Tim Cooper, bye-bye. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.